Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhop. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on one two 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 January second two thousand twenty two. Okay. Made it into the new year. Yes. Hopes I, are high. I see you're getting <laughs> hopes are high. So you're getting excited about the numerology. Yeah. One, two, two, two. Yeah. Well, that's something. I know you told me your brother's birthday is going to be even more numerologically significant. Yeah. My brother's birthday is on the 2nd. Yeah. Two, 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 two. Well, yeah. something to look forward to. Yes, we did make it. And your birthday is on the 7th. Happy birthday. Oh, yeah. It's coming yeah, up. Yeah, your birthday is coming up this week. Yeah. Okay. Well, big party. I man. better run out to the drugstore yeah. and get some gift cards exactly. quickly. Exactly. <laughs> You'll think of something. Um... Yes, we'll give you a report on the celebration for that next week. I'm sure it will be widely reported in the general press, but we'll give you the inside story. So uh, we're on our own now for the first time in uh, months. Months. Yeah. (laughs) Because the uh, The California... The family has fled. The California contingent is back on the left coast. Sadie has gone back to uh, uh, Virginia. And uh, as of 15 minutes ago, uh, we're a couple again. So we'll see how that works out. Uh, so the Times... Uh, we learned a lot, didn't we? About... Surviving? No, we did more than survive. It's wonderful having a uh, little pepper here. Uh, we had a good time Well, you with know, Sadie. that's a funny thing. She's extended stay for Sadie. Enjoyed Sadie. We learned a lot from Pepper. I mean, yeah. it was exhausting. Yeah. But at least when she's here for over a month, yeah. you really see development happen. Yeah, right. And uh, that was fun. Mm-hmm. And I was reading a book today, uh, yesterday actually, and one of the characters says, you you know, you cannot believe how uh, engaging, you know, how extraordinary grandchildren are. And it really, it really is true. I well, keep thinking it all the time. Did we not notice the children when we had children? Because well, grandchildren seem so much more extraordinary. First of all, what book was that? What book was that? What were you reading? It, yeah. it was O. William. Okay. By Elizabeth Strout. All right. Uh, yeah. It, it's just one of the... It, the character makes it... Well, look. I, it's I just think, a remark. It's I think, just a remark. I think that's a profound observation, but I, to me, it strikes home more for me than I think with you, because I, I've spent most more time with Pepper in her first year than I did with our own children, because I was working. Yeah. So for me, uh, it is eye, truly eye-opening, uh, and it's fascinating. But uh, I was also talking but, to... But for you... No, but I was I would, talking to Lisa Walsh. Yeah. Who's a very good mother, right? Yeah. Very good mother, yeah. uh, by all reports. Yeah. And uh, she said to me, she said, I don't remember noticing all this stuff. Where were we? You know, because we... We revel in every little development or every little cute remark. Right. Now, I understand that, uh, you know, biologically or whatever, it makes sense. The grandchildren has to have to be irresistible right. so that they can survive. Right. All right. Certainly, the, the parents well, are going true. to love them. But uh, maybe since there's not as close a link, the grandparents have to... You know, psychologically, be even more no, entranced. No, you can't. Yeah, the, 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 the children have the same appeal to this to their own parents as they do to the grandparents. That that can't explain it. I think it's a, a slightly different appeal. I can't tell you. For me, it's the freedom to spend more time. Uh, and maybe it's true for you too, because you know. Yeah, every, I listen. I spend a lot of time with the kids. Yeah, 
but, but, but maybe I spent so much time I didn't notice what they were doing. But also, you were dealing with multiple kids. So, right? yeah, not for the first uh, year and year and almost change. two years. But yeah, yeah. Uh, look, that's a long time ago. Maybe it's mystifying, and I've heard it before, but it's absolutely true. The yeah. grandchildren are a delight, yes. but exhausting. Yes. That's true, too. And they occupy about 75% of your brain. So uh, there is that. It's very hard to do anything else, not because there's so many chores, although there are chores, but it's because it just occupies that part of your brain. It's just, no, uh, but not so much the brain. I mean, I find myself reading the same book over and over and over again. It's occupying my you know, attention span. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm totally focused. Okay, well, but I'm not doing anything intellectually. Yeah, okay. Well, you still have a brain. Take my word for it. Uh, the, we'll see. Yes. We'll see. All right, so the Times, uh, who has not been uh, in the uh, groove of uh, grandparenting so much, had published in the, the New Year, as they always do, favorite facts of 2021, and most of them aren't worth uh, mulling over. Uh, they're okay, but they're just not that fascinating. But uh, there are always four or five that catch my eyes. So I'll just mention them. Number one, in Victorian times, treadmills were used as punishment and to prevent idleness, with English convicts condemned to trudge on the treadmills for hours each day. That appeared in a story in the Times in January. So, you know, treadmills are for punishment. Now we know. And you see the people at the gym. Well, because it can be used for work, yes. really. So, all right. All right. That's, so that's not so remarkable. No. All right, here we go. Here we go. Um, I mean, we know that exercise is work. Yeah, it can be. Uh, here's something. People have been metal detecting since 1881 when Alexander Graham invented a device to find the bullet lodged in President James A. Garfield. That's how the metal detector was developed. Huh? Well, that is interesting. Okay, yes. you got any more? Yes, I do have a couple more. Here, adults spend as much as 47% of their waking lives letting their minds wander, according to one Harvard study that tracked participants with an app. So you spend almost half your time letting your minds wander. Okay, so this is just between the two of us, a totally made-up statistic. But uh, in any event, it suggests there's a lot of mind-wandering and the accompanying thought Appears I don't even it, know what that means. It means your mind is wandering all the time. I mean, I, I, that doesn't mean anything. Here's a, here's one. This is related. I mean, first, a, here's a, here's a word you never heard before. Acomedido is what Mexicans refer to as the blend of awareness and action to see which chores need to be done. You ever heard that phrase? No. Acomedido. All right. I think it's going to be a song. Uh, it could be. And here's the final one. All right. I, I can see I'm not registering this. The French artist Henri Rousseau, Henri Rousseau, often, Henri. Uh, often told stories of how his tour of duty in Napoleon III's intervention in Mexico had inspired his jungle paintings. In reality, though, he played in an infantry band in the army and never once left France. <laughs> Did you know that? I did not think he had left France because they, they used to say, you know, he was a, a toll collector, a tax collector. Oh, really? He had very low-level sort of, uh, you know, drudgery sort of job. Yeah. Uh, and uh, um, Picasso and the other guys would make fun of him, call him the Le Douanier. And uh, so uh, I didn't think he had had some romantic uh, excursion 
to a foreign land. All right. Well, he had those jungle paintings. But uh, but the paintings are quite. Uh, you know the paintings. They're vivid. They have them in commercials. You but, see them once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. And there was one. Uh, there was one that's actually in this house when we bought it, in one of the bathrooms. A oh, print really? of it. Uh, yeah. And then uh, shortly after, we took uh, a big group uh, family members to the uh, grounds for sculpture. Yeah. Where there's a life-size recreation in sculpture oh, really? of that painting. No kidding. And uh, the kids who went to it went, went crazy. They said, wait a minute. You know, they're in the bathroom later. They said, wait a minute. We saw this. Today we were in it. Yeah, um, so you did pay so, attention to the kids. Uh, now we know. Those were other kids, but um, moving right along. Yeah. No, that's that's funny. Yeah. It's, he's uh, not the first one to... To make something up. Jazz up. Yeah. Jazz up his uh, resume. <laughs> jazz up. Okay, go ahead. You have the uh, the power of dancing. Power of dancing. Yes. Well, now somebody who hears that title is going to think, well, we talked about the power of dancing yes. like last it week or the week before. Useful, right? You know, the high idea that it keeps uh, your brain does great uh, things for your brain. Yeah. It keeps you uh, um, young and in step and uh, on the B A L L ball. But this I thought was a fun article because it's about. Um, Actually, harnessing the body heat mm-hmm. of dancing people at a club. Yeah. And uh, this particular example is taking place in Glasgow, Scotland. Yeah. All right. At the SWG3. All right. And the whole idea so the manager of that, and uh, his name is Andrew Fleming Brown, and uh, a. Um, and David Townsend, founder and chief executive of Town Rock, which is a um, thermal energy consultancy company, uh, Thermal Rock Energy, um, are putting together, they're trying to make this thing that will take the body heat from dancers. Yeah. You know how when you're in a club. Right. I'm sure you know this. As one does, yes. <laughs> you know, I think you're probably thinking of just a couple of nights ago. Yeah. And uh, it's hot yeah. and crazy and sweaty, no matter what the temperature is yeah. outside. There's a tremendous amount of body heat generated in these places, uh, uh, generally. And uh, the idea would be to somehow trap that body heat and pump it into geothermal wells, okay? So it could be reused and recycled to maybe heat other parts of the building that need it, to heat the uh, hot water for the bathrooms, etc., thereby reducing the uh, carbon footprint. This is bizarre. So are they doing this? I think it sort of makes sense because when you're in this situation... Is there any way to do this? Is there any way to do this? They think they're doing it. You know know why? Because they've had all this time uh, to work on it because of uh, the pandemic. Uh, They say the system is not cheap. It's probably going to cost, phase one is going to cost 350,000 pounds or $464,000. It's all about, you know, uh, creating these wells and um, pumping the the hot air into it. Now, other places, there have been use of, um, there have been attempts to do something, uh, you know, kind of green in other ways with dancing. And that... uh, uh, more than a decade ago, a Dutch company, Energy Floors, introduced a line of tiles 
that converted dancer steps into electricity. Club Watt in Rotterdam installed the tiles uh, in 2008, and they've been used in hundreds of other projects. The band Coldplay plans a similar kinetic floor um, during its eco-friendly 2022 tour. Wow. So So this um, is like solar panels, basically. Yeah, but it's... you have to have a lot of people who are dancing like crazy. You can't use this at a dance studio that's, you know, where you have a few uh, ballerinas having a rehearsal. It's not going to generate uh, no, uh, I mean, much heat. Finally. But it is kind of, it, it's a it's fun amazing. idea that there's amazing. a use for all these sweaty, hot bodies. All right, all right good. You're on a roll. Go, keep going. Am I really? Yes, you are. Well, I um, was reading today, you know, we're still reeling from the loss of Sondheim. And thinking about that, and uh, you know, um, and uh, thinking about him a little bit, and it wasn't that long ago to, that to me Sondheim seemed incredibly, you know, cutting edge mm-hmm. and new, and you know, uh, and modern. And now he's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, what else is going on that I, you know, that uh, I don't even know about? And uh, there's a big article today in the New York Times about Janine Tesori. Mm-hmm. Um, who is not exactly new. She's had a lot of projects and people who know musical theater, uh, I'm sure know plenty about her, but, uh, you know, me being a dilettante, uh, I was kind of unaware of the name. She writes the music. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, uh, she has written for things that we have seen like Violet. I mean, mm-hmm. we really oh, like Violet. I didn't know that. We, we really enjoyed Violet. Yes, now, right. I didn't come out of it, you know, a la Sondheim, mm-hmm. as Sondheim would say, humming any of the tunes. Right. But the music was great. Mm-hmm. And uh, she uses the music. I can't even begin to decipher this article and recreate it for you to tell you what she does. Mm-hmm. Somehow she creates the characters using the music mm-hmm. right um, not just the mood but develops the characters well let me and but let me tell you some other things she's done yeah uh for the production of shrek the musical on mm-hmm. stage she did uh, that um thoroughly modern millie uh-huh. um she um she is the co-creator of Caroline or Change, which we've been saying we want to see. We might see this week, COVID uh, yeah, permitting. We're, we're going to try. Yeah. And uh, then there's this other thing, Project Kimberly Akimbo, right. um, that sounds interesting that she's working on. I actually think, and, and she wrote uh, Fun Home. Fun right? Home, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. She did the music. Right. Um, so these and, are big, big productions. These are big deals. Uh, and uh, so, you know, so in a way I knew more about her than I realized. I just wasn't paying attention. Um, so uh, I'm you know, excited about the possibility of uh, knowing her work better. Yeah, I mean, I told you, I kind of glanced at this article and I was a little put off because it made it, the theme of it seemed to be like, you know, she's really stretching the boundaries about contributing to musicals that are not your standard musicals. And so finally we're breaking out of the mold. And in fact, that's been done I for think it's 25 a, or 30 years. I think years, it's a but... different way of approaching the music. Yeah. You know, rather than um, just uh, thinking thematically in terms of right. the, the, yeah, historical. Just, right. Because many people have been breaking out of themes going back to Kiss of the right. Spider Woman by Candor and Ed. But, to, but not to take anything away from what she's done. I, I, it's, I think it's continuing along that same tradition. And uh, she has written some great musicals. So. Yeah. And she's also written Blue. 
about the oh, police killing that uh, was in the Glimmerglass Festival. Yeah. So um, she's involved in very interesting uh, projects. Uh, so, uh, um, and she's done some teaching and stuff. And she, she remarks, I'll just say this, I find it a really hard life, she admitted. The loneliness of writing is very difficult. When students say, I want to write for theater, there's a part of me that thinks, run. Yeah. And then there's another part of me that says stay. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, writers say that. Yeah. Even the successful writer. Janine Tesori. I was reading the, uh, you know, we've been discussing, I was reading the Stephen King book that you read on writing. And he's talking about how he came through his career and, and there are, you know, tips and insights as to how you become a writer and what it takes. And uh, Stephen King, you know, is not, uh, doesn't pretend himself as a deep thinker, though he's a little more of a deep thinker than he presents himself to be. But he does talk about the loneliness of writing and the commitment that's required, both in terms of committing yourself to hours alone writing and also hours alone reading. I mean, he says the only way to write is to read, and he reads 80 books a year. Uh, is it my imagination? Doesn't his whole family write? His, his wife is a writer, Tabitha. I don't know anything about his children. I think, uh, I think he's done... Uh, collaboration with his Maybe son. Has. I Maybe think his son also writes. Anyway. Uh, all right. So uh, speaking of, as long as we're talking about uh, plays and uh, maybe a slide into movies, I'm not going to get into movies. There are a lot of, you know, every year kind of the, perhaps the most prestigious or the most ambitious movies open toward the end of the year. This is an unusual year. You don't have real openings. Uh, we haven't gotten to see anything yet. Maybe we will get to see it. Maybe we'll see it on television. But, one movie that made a huge impression on me uh, this year it happened to be the subject of a brief mention in the Times this week. Catching so up time is time. The Times is doing an article that lists the cinematic gems of the year. That's what it's called. Catching okay. up cinematic gems, and the first one they list is Pig. Pig. No comment. Pig. Uh, which you know the sensitive one among us really liked. Uh, and I, I liked it too. Okay, there you and go. And the problem is, I recommended it to people. And they didn't like and it. Without exception, yeah, they they no one liked it. That doesn't make any difference. No one liked it, that, but that, us that, did. That, that doesn't make any We're difference. We're alone here. The Times likes it. The and cheese stands what, alone. This is what the Times says. The cheese stands alone. This is they talk about uh, Nicolas Cage playing this character who is this uh, one-time very famous chef on the West Coast, and he and he goes sort of into to lead a hermit-like existence, and then returns to society. They say this is a rich, textured character study with some of the finest work of Cage's considerable career. Nicholas Cage is magnificent. So I'm going to say, see it at I your own it was risk. good, but there's also a chance this guy is pulling your leg. He's not pulling my leg. And this is the New York he's Times. He's got some money invested in this movie. No, no, no one, no one invested money in this movie. he needs to get back. I don't think that's it. I don't think that's it. That's all I'm saying about Pig. I'm not recommending it. I'm just telling you what I thought. This is miraculous. The yes. next story I have is miraculous. Miraculous. That's good. Okay. And uh, it's um, a story from Israel. Is it a burning bush, Mount Sinai? Solstice bolsters a claim. Okay. So you know the, the story of uh, God speaking to yeah. Moses through a burning bush. It keeps burning and it, it doesn't... It uh, just seems like such a crazy doesn't story. Consume it's a itself. wonderful story. It's a miracle. Hey, you. It's, it's a miracle. <laughs> Look over here. No, here. Yeah. All right. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so they're from two different directions. There's uh, some hints that this may have been 
real. Right. They found okay. they, 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 I, Go ahead, describe it. I don't it. know. I don't even know where it is. One is the solstice itself. Yes. Yeah, uh, someone um, observed a few years ago that if you look out on if you're during st- the winter solstice and you look in a particular direction, you see this flash of light that looks arguably like a burning bush, and it's because in, of the angle of the sun. In the Negev? In the Negev. The Negev in the Negev desert. desert. In the okay, yeah. you stand in a certain place, and on the solstice, you will see this kind of flickering flame Yes. in and the distance. It looks like a burning bush. Okay. So we found it. So that could possibly be, right. you know. First of all, that, that, um, that's the mountain range that's referred to, they believe, based on this. So and they say, is this Mount Sinai? Yeah. Okay. And number two is then they have, it's not quite triangulation because it's two prongs of the stool rather than three, but there's some evidence. Well, it gets a little complicated here because yeah. an, an archaeologist, an Italian archaeologist, okay? <laughs> well, what does that mean? He's good or he's not Emmanuel good? Emanuel Anati. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, he's, he's, he, you know, he's not an Israeli. He's got yeah. no dog in this race, he's, he's right? Not, he's not a serious he's archaeologist. He's <laughs> Italian. <laughs> he... Um, he, uh, okay, um, the, more than a century ago, found an extraordinary concentration of rock carmi- carvings and circles as he surveyed the plateau of Mount Carcom. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, he found, uh, let's see, um, there is evidence that uh, my ancient migration trails converged here and cultic rituals took place he identified what he thought was a sacrificial altar with the remain of remains of 12 pillars of stone that could conceivably correspond to the ones described in exodus 24 that moses built representing the 12 tribes of israel so he has come upon a location Mm -hmm. i guess in this same area Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, with, you know, uh, physical signs that it may have been a sacred place. Mm-hmm. All right? There's only one problem with that. And people think it's interesting. It's all very old. It's been uh, verified. The problem is it's too old. Yeah. It misses it by a thousand years. Yeah. Other so than that, it's it, right it, on point. The, the, um, that most or all of the datable sites in this area are from the third millennium. BC. The Exodus, if it happened, is generally dated to somewhere around 1600 to 1200 BC. Uh, so people have their doubts. Okay. But nonetheless, it is quite intriguing. And they showed pictures of the archaeologist, Professor Anati, alongside with Mr. Shahar Shiloh, who is you wonder who he is. He's a researcher who manages the Negev Highlands Tourism Cooperative. Hmm. So Mr. Shiloh is promoting... Well, what is his last is, line? The last he, line he is, is line. Uh, promoting this... Um, his quote at the end, he says, look, he says, uh, you know, it's in the eye of the beholder, who knows? But he added, it's a great myth, you have to admit. So the burning bush, it's a great myth. Uh, and maybe well, it's true and maybe it's think, not, but yeah. it's an enduring story. I like the solstice thing. Yeah. The solstice makes you think like, a, yeah. That, it uh, gives a little something to it. And uh, maybe it's true or maybe it's not. But its primary function in the liturgy and in, in its function in the religious ritual is secure, whether in fact we can come up with scientific proof or not. And if we have some scientific proof, all the better. But it is, as he put it, 
It's a great story. Um, so there's a, an article in the Times about Stoicism, which is a little bit odd to me. I can't even believe we're talking about this. About I thought we were going to have articles of interest. It's, it's hard. You know? This is well, it's one thing I, it's I let you get away with baseball. But stoicism? Okay. So the, the article, the premise by this woman, Molly Young, is like, you know, the, the pandemic has, you know, put us close to the edge. Who can take it? We're uh, struggling with this. But maybe the thing to do was to study this philosophy, which the way she writes about it is this kind of really obscure philosophy called stoicism. Maybe stoicism can help because, as she writes, one of the premises of stoicism is that it will help you assimilate horrible events with equanimity okay the proper way to respond to catastrophe the stoics will tell you is to perceive it as a training exercise disaster is virtue's opportunity and i'm reading this i'm saying well that's that's not really what stoicism is about is it so, so i'm reading the article and she gets ran around about way to some of it uh and as she describes stoicism which is not bad she says excellence of character or virtue is the only true good and we should spend our lives pursuing it Virtue is its own reward, but as a free bonus, it will also make us happy. Um, we should make a distinction between what we can and cannot control and quit worrying about things in the second category. Uh, but then I reached out as sort of a little better uh, definitions of Stoicism, and uh, it's based on a so-called taxonomy of virtue, based on wisdom, justice, courage, and moderation. Uh, and the notion is that uh, you don't overreact to things positive or negative, and it feeds into what sometimes is considered a masculine trope, which is the idea of a strong, silent type. But just it's dealing with things, isn't it? Isn't that what stoicism is? Just dealing with things. I'm, but, uh, no, I'm sensing something else there. That, what that what you are you sensing? To, the the whole thing about virtue and truth and well, justice. Yes, that you have to do. The right thing. Yes. Okay. If you I do think that's the right thing. You can get through anything. If you do the right, and so thing. that's why we're all wearing masks. No, 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 We're doing the right thing. No, no, no. That's not what the article's about. Uh, she's not writing about wearing masks, doing the right thing. What, what? But as a philosophy, I think we all grew up with this, and I don't think we had to study it. The idea of virtue being its own reward, and you know, you're gonna things are gonna come your way. They're gonna be tough, or they're not gonna be tough, and you deal with them. And uh, you try to deal with them and keep an even keel. Isn't that a standard approach to life? I I think it is, except when virtue is not much of a reward. But it is. Sometimes you're not rewarded. But that's the whole point. Then what do you do? That's what virtue of its own reward means. That if you you feel that you've done things the right way, that's enough of a reward. You know, no one has to come and give you you the trophy. Uh, No one has to say, and here's $50 for that. It's the notion of self-satisfaction. And you're making your own rules and you sort of being driven by your own rules and hewing to your own principles. But who defines what the virtue is? You yourself. That's the whole point. You, in a thoughtful Mm. way, Mm. uh, identify what you think are the the guidelines that are going to guide your existence that you think is a virtuous way to live. And as long as you hew to that path, you drive a great comfort in that. You don't have to have, you know, no one has to What if no one else thinks it's virtuous? Who cares? That's the whole point. In any event, she doesn't go that deeply into it, but I think that is what it is, and I don't think it's so obscure at all. I think a lot of people live that way. Okay. All right? Good. Good. All Got right, it. well, that's enough time. I wanted to get that out there. It's your birthday. I let you get away with that. Go ahead. Go on. I'll let you yeah. get away with this one. And then next week, Nietzsche. <laughs> oh, right? maybe. Maybe. Is, is that nihilism week? I think it's definitely in January. <laughs> Maybe there's a whole month on nihilism. Go ahead. <laughs> right. right around your birthday. Yeah. Yes. 
Well, um, we'll go with Capricorns. Um, yes, you, you had something on uh, Girl Boss. There, I see the headline. Yeah, this uh, Yazifying. <laughs> I like the way you said it. Say that again. Yazifying the women of history is this article. That's okay, the, is pop, that correct pronunciation? Pop culture is narrowing the look of female success. Catherine was great, but was she a girl boss? I don't know. What is a girl boss? What does that even mean? I, you know, she's a girl boss. She's like uh, head of everything, you know. No, and no, no, no. And no, no. She, girl boss has independent significance. It means something in the culture. No, it means... It, what does it, it mean? It, it, I'm asking. I don't know. Okay. It, it means someone, you know, who's a good female boss. Really? Yeah. I think it means more than that. What do you think it means? I have to look it up. I, I think it has a certain connotation to it. I think and it's all it's negative. I'll look it up while you talk. No, but it's... A, <laughs> I think it's a positive thing. Right? Maybe, maybe. It's not just, uh, you know, when we were brought up to be bosses, we were all brought up to be, you know, as close to uh, the male ideal as we possibly could. All right, anyway, th- can I just get on with yeah, the story? Keep, keep talking. All right, but you're not even listening. I am listening. Right? Anyway, the, the idea is that there are all these, um, in pop culture, there are all these different uh, historical characters at the moment. Um from uh, various TV shows, yeah. uh, musicals, etc. The musical Six has all of um, Henry VIII's wives, yeah. right? And um, the um, TV show, uh, uh, let's see, uh, I guess on, um, is it on Hulu? Has The Great about yeah. Catherine we, we the Great. It for 20 okay. minutes. It yeah. was unwatchable. Um, yeah. Apple Plus has Dickinson, about Emily Dickinson. Right. And they're all kind of playing fast and loose with the actual history, right. with the actual biographies, and uh, in an effort to make an entertaining show. Yeah. And so this article says, uh, you know, uh, is does that make any sense? Uh, is that, uh, you know, when do you, uh, when do you say, okay, it's, uh, okay to just, uh, make up the history as you go along all for the idea of, uh, creating some fun and yeah. when is it actually detrimental? And of course they're pretty focused here on, um, you know, uh, pointing out, uh, when the, um, uh, various historical characters show good or bad behavior in terms of uh, female solidarity, etc., and so forth. But I mean, it is. A, I think it is a good question. You know, how seriously do we take these characters? Uh, do we want uh, our daughters to grow up, or you know, do we want our children in general to grow up thinking this is the way uh, these historical characters were? Okay, and think these are the stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, for instance, Catherine of Aragon, the first wife of Henry VIII, enjoyed embroidery and fasting. Okay, um, There is nothing in the historical record to suggest that she was any fun at any party. All right, um, Loved church, always praying. You know, mm-hmm. Kind of a bummer. Um, and, and yet this is not how she's uh, depicted in the musical. Mm-hmm. So does that bother you? Does, uh, you know, right. um, I say no, none no, of this bothers no, me at all. Bother me, I, I don't think uh, we're raising any kind of children that are uh, silly enough to uh, think that uh, this is the way these people work. Yeah, but I do think it's uh, a fun idea 
that uh, suddenly these names mean something uh, to people who, you know, just fell asleep during history class. And, you know, maybe, you know, who knows? Maybe it makes you, uh, uh, encourages you to go a little farther and at least uh, click on Wikipedia and see who these people really were and what they were like and how they got to where they were. Yeah, I mean, I I, I see those stories of what makes them interesting uh, is it would be uninteresting if you just watched someone do embroidery. Uh, what makes them interesting is they're positing the possibility the person might have had a stronger personality or how would it have played out if the person had a stronger pos- stronger personality and more opportunities and was able to uh, spread her wings a little bit. That's what they're they're playing with, I believe. Well, they're not just doing that. They're just totally fabricating a character. Well, yes, for, but, but all with for the a particular name. of playing then, out a fantasy. But then some people are saying, well, for instance, uh, the character in Catherine the Great, um, you know... Um, seems to want to end Russia's wars, free its serfs, etc., teach women to read, inoculate her subjects. Uh, A lot of this is more or less true, uh, but, you know, in actuality, she uh, increased serfdom. But we we watched that for 20 minutes, and that, that, that character was not a human being. Right. Okay. Not even no. close. So okay. it might have, it could have been a cartoon. So you're saying nobody's nobody's confusing this with no, a no one uh, take it seriously. A, a documentary of yeah. any sorts or a yeah. docudrama. And by the way, you're right about Girl Boss. It, it's, it comes largely from uh, a book by uh, Sofia Amoruso, uh, and uh, in 2014 denotes a woman whose success is defined in opposition to the masculine business world in which she swims upstream. It has a little bit of a negative connotation in some people's minds now, apparently, because uh, some of these women are so strong that they have uh, personal characteristics that are unattractive, and they're they're supposed to be excused because she's a boss, and uh, that's not right. So that's what makes it more complicated. But I think you're you've got the article right. Yeah. So you know. So I, I think about this kind of stuff all the time because uh, you know. Well, just because in. Uh, Crafting lectures yeah. about historical subjects, um, you want to make the material come alive. And of course, I'm always very concerned. I don't want to um, fabricate anything. Yeah. You right. know, I am trying to tell the real story, right. but be as entertaining as possible yeah. to keep uh, my students from falling asleep and right. to engage them right. in the material. Um, so I definitely have a line I cannot cross. And the question is, uh, when you feel completely free to cross the line, uh, it's you know, fiction or television. Yeah. <laughs> it's is, a little different. Is, it's different, but it still, I think, helps us to yeah. a similar end. Well, I think you can, you can sort of play with it. I, I think you can say, well, maybe this person might have been like this or might have been like that. Or wouldn't it be funny if they were like this or, you know. There's a way of exaggerating keeping people's interest. It just that. it just tickles me yeah. that you know I mean kids have gone nuts for the music from six yeah right and it just tickles me that well, we young have... women are you know now know all the wives of Henry the yeah. you know and a few years ago none of them would yeah but it's okay? the, it, that's the music but I think we and we want to see that too but one day we'll see that but who knows we got to save up yes we we'll have to save up well that one's expensive. Okay, so you had another story. Yeah, about- just a little teeny you know, museum update, and that is uh, there's a fun exhibit at uh, the New York Public Library, yeah. main branch, you know, 42nd Street branch, right. uh, which is a 
fantastic building. Yeah. I mean, that would be a whole great field trip if, if you're interested and willing to go to New York, you know, to go to Bryant Park. People buy there all the time, 42nd okay? and 5th. Bryant Park is a fun place now. Yeah, it was really park. fun in the winter, you know, yeah. with the skating rink yeah. and all the I was boots. by there a few yeah. weeks ago. Yeah. And they had a lot of lights up. And then there's an exhibition inside. You have to have time tickets like uh, everywhere else. But it's um, a collection of uh, all the treasures from their holdings. So the Trinidad Library doesn't just have books. It has all kinds of objects, all right? And uh, they, um, they uh, what do I want to say here? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I can just give you a list of some of the fun ones include like uh, the original Winnie the Pooh toys mm-hmm. that inspired the books. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a Gutenberg Bible. Mm-hmm. Now, the Morgan Library down the street has three Gutenberg Bibles, what? but this one yeah. was the first one in America. Okay. Okay. There's a handwritten copy of the, uh, the uh, Bill of Rights. Uh, there's a desk that uh, purportedly belonged to uh, Charles Dickens. Mm-hmm. He may have written various books there. Uh, there are the keys to the old Croton Reservoir. Okay. That was the above-ground giant tank yeah. with water for Manhattan mm-hmm. that was uh, destroyed to make way for this new public library. Ooh. So that that's kind of poetic, all right? There's a lock of Beethoven's hair. I mean, you know, um, they... Uh, it, they used to call this in the you know um, Victorian times, etc., a um, cabinet of curiosities. Yeah, right. You know, just collectors would have just uh, you know cabinets or rooms full of all kinds of mm-hmm. odd little historical, interesting. Yeah, I think I saw the crazy objects. Of, of yeah. yeah. So um, th- that would be fun. It's going to be there, I guess, uh, for a while. So you've got time. Okay. All right, so the last piece uh, is about John Madden, sort of. Uh, there's been a lot of tributes to John Madden, and, uh, you know, I think John Madden would seem to be, a, uh, you know, an engaging, uh, attractive personality, and he was a successful football coach, and, of course, his name's on the electronic game. Um, and that's fine. I mean, if, if anything, I've read too many articles about John Madden, but, you know, I have nothing against John Madden. He's, he's good. But there was the best thing I read, or thing that resonated most with me, was a piece, an op-ed piece, uh, by Tom Coughlin, and it strained the former coach of the Giants. And what strains to me is he had there was another op-ed piece by Tom Coughlin a few months ago, and I would say the two best op-ed pieces I've read the New York Times this year were by Tom Coughlin, which is crazy to me. A football coach. Someone must be writing this for him, or he's just a genius writer. That was a a, an article about his wife. About his wife. Yeah, this is brilliant. Uh, it was brilliant. It was moving. It was wonderfully written. Yeah. This is wonderfully written, too. It's, it's not quite the same depth, but it's called I'll Never Forget the Message John Madden Left on My Phone. And what he's writing about is this. The Giants uh, had a game uh, in a season about 10 or 15 years ago uh, that was a remarkable season at this point because there was a team that had not lost a game. That was the New England Patriots. They were undefeated. They had, uh, that meant in a 16-game season, they had won 15 games, and they were set to try to duplicate the uh, accomplishment of the Dolphins some 20 years before to try to have an undefeated season and go all the way to the Super Bowl that way. And sure enough, they were scheduled to play the Giants in the last game of the season. This is 2007. 
and there wasn't anything at stake because the Giants had qualified for the playoffs, not at the lofty heights of the uh, Patriots, but they were going to be in the playoffs. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, the Patriots had qualified. And what one normally does in a game like that, particularly if you're, you know, in the middle level or even the lower middle level of the playoffs like the Giants, is you rest your starters. You don't play your starters because, you know, football can beat people up. You get injuries. You don't take a chance. You just let people sit. And so the Giants were deciding how to do this. And what they decided to do was a Monday night game was to play their starters and play to win, which was being questioned at the time. Is why would you do that? And they played this game against the Patriots. They were enormous underdogs. And they played a great game. It was a fantastic football game. They lost in the last minute, 38-35. And Coughlin says that the game proved to me that we could play with the best. So uh, in any event, that's what they did. And they lost. And this is what Coughlin writes. He said, I'll never forget walking to my office at 5 a.m. after losing the next morning. And there was a message on my machine. And it was from John Madden. And this is what he said. Quote, Just called to congratulate you and your team for a great effort last night. Not good, but great. I think it is one of the best things to happen to the NFL in the last 10 years. And I don't know if they all know it but they should be very grateful to you and your team for what you did. I believe so firmly in this that there is only one way to play the game, and it is a regular season game, and you go out and you win the darn game. And uh, Coughlin replayed it for the team, and it said it meant a lot to him. He felt he had done the right thing. Um, and he says, because John Madden was a football guy, he believed in football, believed in the integrity of football. He believed there was a right way to do things. That sort of existed apart from whatever trophies you accumulated and what championships you had and so on and so forth. And um, he goes on to say that, you know, this is a story. He knows everyone knows this story because, uh, you know, people talk about this game and people have heard even about John Madden's reaction. And it's because John Madden uh, was who he was that this story has sort of lived on. Well, he's being modest. Uh, that's not why the story lived on. The reason the story lived on was that uh, four weeks later, the Giants played the Patriots in the Super Bowl, who were undefeated, and they beat them. And they beat them because they played this game. So talking about what you were saying before, I was thinking, virtue is its own reward. <laughs> so, I had a feeling. John Madden, that's what he's saying. He's saying, maybe you risk things and maybe it won't work out for you. It doesn't make a difference. Virtue is its own reward. That was virtuous what you did. And, uh, and of course, what happened was, you want to call it karma. That's what people called it then. But they actually were rewarded with the championship just a month later. It's tremendous, tremendous upset. So anyway, that's a great story. I don't know the story with Tom Coughlin. He's, he's a great writer. Uh, it's, it's amazing to me. Uh, and that's all we have this week. Uh, I think that's it. Yep. So, uh, all right, I've got some birthday shopping to do. Yes. So this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper. Happy New Year. Yes, Happy New Year to all.